This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Today's podcast is about oral appliance therapy in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. My name is John Fleetham, and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, where I'm a professor of medicine. With us today is Brad Edwards. Uh, he is a senior research fellow at Monash University um, who leads a sleep disorder research program and is also the deputy director of the sleep Re- research theme in the Monash Institute of Cognitive and Clinical Neurosciences. He's the first author of the article entitled Upper Airway Collapsibility and Loop Gain Predict the Response to Oral Appliance Therapy in Patients with Obstructive Sleep Apnea, which was published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine last month. And that's the focus of the discussion today. Thanks for joining us today, Brad. No worries. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about the current study, let's talk more broadly Please explain the pathogenesis of obstructive sleep apnea and how oral appliances are thought to work. Sure. Well, as many people will know, obstructive sleep apnea is a really common disorder and it's characterized by the repetitive collapse or even partial collapse of the pharyngeal airway during sleep. Now, typically when a patient is awake, we have what's known as a negative pressure reflex that helps activate the upper airway muscles And this helps maintain um, a patent airway while we're awake. However, typically when we fall asleep, we lose this reflex. And in someone that has a poor upper airway anatomy or compromised anatomy or collapsibility, if you like, this predisposes this individual to having airway collapse. And typically they have, when this occurs, uh, repeated obstructions can occur. And what we see during these obstructions is this often leads to increasingly powerful respiratory efforts. Uh, that occur until the airway reopens and breathing is restored. But typically this doesn't really happen without having an arousal from sleep. And it's these transient events that expose the the sufferer or the patient to various things like intermittent hypoxia, large swings in intrathoracic pressure, as well as surges in sympathetic activation, all of which have deleterious consequences on neurocognition, daytime functioning, and, and most importantly, cardiovascular health. Now, oral appliances, or most of the oral appliances used these days, are designed to really advance that mandible um, and thereby pulling the tongue structure forward and opening up the pharyngeal airway in uh, an effort to try to improve or reduce the collapsibility of that patient's airway. Now, are oral appliances always an effective treatment in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? I think it really depends on, on how you define treatment success. And, and from the literature, there was, a, there was a nice review article written by Kate, Salis, Kate Sutherland in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine a few years ago. Um, and they did a review of a large number of oral appliance studies and looking at the effectiveness of, of these devices. And, and they showed that if you use a very strict definition of success, and that being having your apnea hypopnea index or AHI uh, at less than five events per hour, 
then treatment success was typically uh, occurs in about 50% of all patients. But what they noted in that uh, analysis was that the range of treatment success varied quite widely. So as little as 30% up to 70%. Now, what are the potential factors which might influence the response to oral appliance therapy? There've actually been uh, a number of factors that have been identified um, that can potentially influence the response to oral appliance therapy. So typically patients that tend to do better with these devices are younger, have a lower BMI or, or smaller neck circumference, typically have a lower AHI or um, have less severe sleep apnea. There's been some studies that have shown that the presence of supine predominant sleep apnea um, is better associated with uh, treatment response. So that is patients that typically have sleep apnea only in the supine position. And there are a few other studies that have also looked at various craniofacial features that have shown that they can uh, also predict response. However, really a common finding between all of these studies that these predictors are not universal. So for instance, you can still find people that respond to oral appliance therapy that are very overweight or have very uh, severe sleep apnea. So we, you know, it really points to the fact that we need better predictors out there. And, and that's one of the, the aims of this particular study. What other techniques have been used to predict response to oral appliance therapy? Um, there are a variety of other techniques that have been used, and, and these are typically either um, using drug-induced endoscopy to look at uh, the site of collapse and the, you know, the degree of collapse and where that's happening. Um, there are study, there's a recent study that was published in ERJ that used an individual's CPAP pressure um, to help predict the response to oral appliance therapy. So that study showed that uh, those individuals that uh, had lower pressures, or I think it was pressures below 10.5 centimetres of water, were typically uh, likely to be better responders. And there's also, with the advancement of technology now, we have the capability to do uh, sort of titration studies. So there's now special oral appliance devices that you can actually titrate on the fly. So much like a, a, an in-lab CPAP titration study, we now have the capacity to do that with an, with an oral appliance where we incrementally advance the mandible um, during their spontaneous obstructions throughout the night to try to find a degree of advancement that is most likely to get rid of all um, obstructive events. Now you assess four phenotypic uh, traits, upper airway anatomy and collapsibility, muscle function, loop gain and arousal threshold, can you explain these four traits and how they were measured? Well, I think uh, taking a step back, OSA really has, has you know, historically often been thought as, as a disorder that is caused primarily by an unfavorable upper airway anatomy or increased collapsibility of the, of the airway, if you like. But as you may be aware um, now, there's now really a, a wealth of evidence demonstrating that that's not the case and, and OSA is really a multifactorial disorder. So, you know, getting a bit more specific, recent evidence has identified several what we call non-anatomical factors or traits that also play uh, an important role in, in the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. 
Now these include, as you mentioned, uh, a high loop gain, which is really a term that we just use to describe an oversensitive um, or hypersensitive, if you like, ventilatory control system. So a system that when you disturb that system, the response to that system is, is larger than the normal. Um, one of the other factors that we know contributes is, is what we refer to as a low respiratory arousal threshold. And this is a, a trait or a term, if you like, that basically describes um, a patient that awakens from sleep in response to, to minimal respiratory stimulation. So for, uh, for an individual with a low respiratory arousal threshold, they uh, wake up with very small increases in CO2 or or reductions in oxygen. And thirdly, the last trait um, is a, I guess, the, the poor muscle function or an inability of the pharyngeal muscles to hold open or stiffen the airway. Um, and we typically refer to this as, as poor pharyngeal muscle responsiveness or effectiveness during sleep. Now, in terms of how do we measure these traits? Well, these uh, it's, it's quite hard to describe on a podcast such as this. And if, if you would like some more information or detailed information, I'd refer you to the actual paper. But um, these, these traits are measured by a technique that was developed by Andrew Wellman at Harvard Medical School. And it utilizes a, a series of manipulations in a patient's CPAP level and measures the consequent changes in ventilation. What were the major study findings? Well, this study had, had two major aims, and the first of which was to investigate the impact that wearing an oral appliance had on the OSA physiology. And the second aim was to determine uh, the baseline physiological traits of patients that gained uh, the greatest benefit from wearing an oral appliance. So what we found was that the oral appliance improved the anatomy or collapsibility trait without altering any of the other three non-anatomical traits. And from our second aim, we found that the baseline measures of collapsibility of, and loop gain when combined near perfectly predicted the response to oral appliance therapy. Now the patients in your study had all previously been treated with an oral appliance. Do you think that prior therapy might have affected your results? Potentially. I mean, there is evidence that an individual's loop gain is positively correlated with OSA severity, and there is also evidence that treating OSA lower, can lower their loop gain. So the elevated loop gain in OSA has been hypothesized to be caused by the repetitive intermittent hypoxia that occurs as a function of sleep apnea, thereby stimulating or gingering up, if you like, the carotid bodies which then manifests itself as an oversensitive ventilatory controller. So I guess it is possible that the lower loop gain predicting treatment success in our study may simply reflect the fact that responders had their OSA and loop gain normalized with therapy. Although there's something important to say about that in that we found in our study though, that there was no statistical difference in several measures of the hypoxic burden between responders and non-responders. So when we looked at the oxygen desaturation index, the nadir saturation or the time spent below 90%, none of these were different uh, between the responders and non-responders on either their baseline, baseline or treatment PSGs. And this sort of lends support to the concept really that the observed differences we did see in loop gain are inherent and not just a treatment related effect. So that's that's what I would say about that. However, look, we do agree 
that um, in order for our findings to be directly translatable into clinical practice, we certainly need future work that needs to be done to confirm these findings in a prospective validation study conducted specifically in, in patients that are, are naive to treatment. So yeah, we think that's, that's something to be done in the future. So I think that was my next question was, uh, you know, you only studied 14 patients. So you would agree that this, these predictors now need to be progressive, prospectively tested in a larger treatment naive patient population with a wider variation of age, weight and apnea severity. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. And, and this, to be honest, is work that my team here at Monash is actively pursuing at the moment. Great. Okay. Now, once you validated these predictors, is this type of assessment, can it be performed widely on patients with obstructive sleep apnea being considered for oral plants? Is this something which we can take to, to practitioners and they might be able to do? Look, in reality, although I think it would be difficult to be able to perform the techniques used in the current paper in a logical clinical context, there's been a great deal of progress at the moment in quantifying the traits from routine clinical data. So currently we actually already have techniques to measure an individual's loop gain and arousal threshold. And I also know that there's a, there's a great deal of work being done um, out of the Harvard group by a gentleman known as Scott Sands. And he's, uh, he's got some impressive preliminary data that suggests that we will likely to be able to obtain all of these traits from a standard clinical sleep study. So I guess in answer to your question, I think we're certainly in track, on track sorry, to be able to make these assessments in the near future. So how do your results compare with other studies uh, that you mentioned which have uh, assessed positive predictors for oral appliance therapy in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? Look, in, in our study, we had a, a relatively small sample size of 14, um, 14 patients. So the previously described observed clinical predictors did not tend to be helpful in separating out responders from non-responders, although we did see some emerging trends. So in other words, there was no difference between responders and non-responders in our study when we looked at either age, BMI, or um, OSA severity. However, our result that the degree of anatomical compromise measured during sleep uh, being a key predictor is similar to other imaging or drug-induced endoscopy studies that have assessed the anatomical compromise and found that to be predictive of the response to oral appliance therapy. What we found particularly exciting about our results was that when this measure of collapsibility was combined with a measure of an individual's loop gain, we were able to near perfectly statistically separate out responders from non-responders, which I think is an important next step really for the field. You know, it also highlights the multifactorial nature of OSA and that really understanding the physiology causing OSA is likely to be helpful in understanding who's going to respond to interventions that improve the, uh, the anatomy or collapsibility trait. So we still have some time available. Do you have any final points you'd like to emphasize about your study? Uh, look, I think, I think I'd just like to leave it with, I think, the re you know, the really important implication of this work and not only this work, some of the other work that's been conducted around the, and the world at the moment um, in this sort of space is that uh, I think that there's, there's more and more evidence highlighting that uh, understanding the factors causing an individual's sleep apnea might be very helpful in assisting clinicians provide a, a personalised 
and targeted uh, interventions or, or even combinations of, of interventions to treat OSA on an individual patient level, which is not only very exciting to me, I'm sure is very exciting to many of the clinicians and patients around the world that, that suffer from sleep apnea. So thank you, Brent, for doing this podcast. No worries. Thank you very much for the invite. Thank you.